Welcome to the Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, less ukulele. In this episode, the holiday season may be over, but it's never too late to carry the Christmas spirit in your glass. I sit down with Chris Inigren of the aptly named Inigren Brewing in Moore Park, California, to discuss their Christmas Bach. Now, Chris is a fan of traditional German styles and techniques. I am not, but we can both agree that this beer was a warm hug in a mug while it lasts. And now, you get to learn how to make your own. But first, a message from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association, a group of more than 40,000 individuals from more than 70 countries who share a passion for brewing and enjoying great beer. Learn more at homebrewersassociation.org. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. All right, and welcome back, everybody. And remember, as always, if you talk to any of those sponsors that you just heard their ads from, make sure you tell them that you heard about them here on The Brew Files so they know they're spending their money wisely. Now, as I alluded to in the open, it's Christmas time. There's a lot of good Christmas beer out there. Not as much as it actually used to be, which I kind of find disappointing. But this year, one of the ones I hit on was the Christmas Bach from Integrin Brewing Company in Moore Park. So just a little bit outside of Los Angeles, sort of the Los Angeles metro area. And Integrin has a great reputation here in LA for making these wonderful beers. But this one really took me by surprise. It is a warm malt hug and it is absolutely perfect for a chilly, ice cold Southern California winter evening. And to that point, I want to learn to you guys how to make something like this, what inspires this sort of beer. So to that, Chris, introduce yourself. Hey, everybody. Uh, my name is Chris Ennegren, and I'm the head brewer and owner of Ennegren Brewing Company in Moore Park. And Drew, thanks so much for having us on today. Hey, thanks for making this beer. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> now, I've been tracking you guys since you really first opened as a tiny little, almost a nano-sized thing, right? Wasn't your original system like three barrels? Three barrel, that's right. Yeah, with uh, with more automation than anybody would ever see in a three barrel system. <laughs> yes. <laughs> give the uh, give the people your, your your background. How did you get into beer and brewing specifically? Okay, I'll try to shorten it up because I can trail this on for hours. But started off brewing in college. I was an engineer. Really liked beer. Liked to build stuff. So I figured I'd probably put those two together and build something that made me beer. So I started off a little stovetop thing. Did that once. Then I started doing the gravity feed system, brewed in college for a couple of years. Then after college, took a job working at Medtronic, which is a pharmaceutical company, 
doing automation work, so mechanical design and also programming. And I had that little garage brewery just sitting in my garage, and I go home at night and tinker with it and brew. And I just started adding automation to it here and there, just you know, learning it as I was going at work. So I'd, you know, bring in stuff and make things automated, like turning a burner on, putting a touchscreen in. Then it got really out of control to the point where it was kind of taking up the garage. Parents decided that they wanted to sell the house. So I had to move out with my brother. And at that point, we looked around and we thought, you know, this is a cool hobby. We can't afford a house with a garage. We're going to get an apartment. So maybe we look at building up a little tiny thing somewhere as a little man cave and then we started thinking that maybe we could sell some of the beer to pay for the rent. And that turned into, why don't we just take the money we've been making in these really good jobs we have and buy a bunch of equipment. But obviously, we're going to go custom and do it all custom and do our own automation because that's what I like to do. And start off with a little three-barrel system. Focusing on German-style stuff was always our favorite. Did a lot of other stuff too, Belgians, my PAs here and there. And uh, ran that for about three years. And got to the point where it was, I had to pick between my day job and brewing, and I picked brewing because it's awesome. And um, made the big jump to a 15 barrel system, new location, you know, across the street, really. It's the same kind of area. And we've been running that location for roughly, actually, seven years now. I really do want to emphasize this fact that little three barrel brewery had way more automation than I've seen at probably the vast majority of craft breweries that are 30 barrels and under. <laughs> <laughs> it did. It did. It was it was a combination of it would be sweet to have a big touchscreen and also if I had all this stuff I wouldn't have to worry about standing here and wasting my time. So we had it, you know, looped into the internet where I would turn the kettle on at night, keep all the water hot, start mashing it from home, come down. It was all about you know, we have three guys, as myself, my brother Matt, and our uh, college buddy Joe, and it was the weekend. We had Saturday and Sunday to handle brewing, all the line cleaning, serving beer, everything. So I figured, how can we handle this stuff without having to go hire employees? Because we weren't going to pay ourselves anything. We're just trying to get this thing off the ground. And that's where we got a little, you know, a lot of stuff like the the automation where we could do things from, you know, far away. We could keep, you know, watch on temperatures and that obviously just grew because I like doing it. And it's still growing now. I'm like, I think I'm still wiring stuff almost every day here. <laughs> well, and for listeners who haven't been to the facility, I mean, you are much bigger now. You said 15 barrels, but tanks everywhere, nice little beer garden that you've built out there, particularly in response to COVID times. It's been really exciting to see how you guys have grown. And I wasn't blowing smoke when I said that you all have a, a reputation for really quality, solid beers particularly when looking at something in that German nature that you alluded to. In a world inundated with IPAs, why did you go Germanic with your, your brewery? I just like German beer, and that's what I want to do. You know, it's, like I said before, I, we started off doing a lot of other stuff. You know, getting into it, it was I had this notion that, well, you can't survive in California without an IPA, so we had an IPA on tap. But also, you know, we liked IPA too at that moment. And... Um, but uh, German beer is always our favorite thing. So we found ourselves, this is looking back on it, it's like kind of ridiculous, but our flagship beer, we only had one beer on tap when we first started, was an alt beer. So if you're going to pick almost one of the most obscure styles to pick, yeah, that was us. And we decided we would just teach everyone what that meant. 
rather than try to go for the easy route of giving people what they already knew they wanted. So, you know, it was always about education for us. We'd go to a bar, you know, hey, we got this beer, and they look at us like, well, is it double dry hop? I'm like, no. Is it barrel aged? No. Is it sour? No. Oh, damn it. Okay. Well, this is what it is. German style, amber, and then we kind of get it on there and people realize, oh, this is really good. I like this style. This is, this is nice. So we had a lot of good success with that in the beginning. And we kind of kept adding on to that. Like I said, at the end of the day, I want to drink German style beer. And there's a lot of work that goes into brewing. So if you do not like what you're doing, running a brewery sucks. It's not a fun job. You're wet all the time. There's stuff's breaking. You're constantly spending money on things. But if you love what you're doing, it's just a vacation every single day, which I love being here. Even when things are breaking, I love it. It's really fun. So when we got into the bigger system, things changed a little bit. It went from people would come into your spot, sit down at the bar, look at the menu and be like, what the heck does that mean? And I would say, well, I'm going to tell you what that means. And I would go through all the beers and then I'd teach people what was going on. And people started to realize, you know, what that meant, what, a, what, what Bach was, you know, the styles that you don't see just in, on shelves, not the very trivial styles out there. But when we got into doing the, um, the bigger system, we're doing a lot of dist- distribution and, I can't be at every single bar teaching every single bartender what these beers are. I'm relying on distributors who are going to go into a bar and a lot of times slap down a, a booklet of what beers they carry and the bartender is going to pick whatever, you know, sells, whatever it's hot, whatever it's trendy. And that was that. So we had this like disconnect where we're putting out these beers that I, I just absolutely love doing, but our distributor is like, um, and he told me literally, he came in one day and I was getting frustrated with the whole thing now. And he's like, you know what? Honestly, like, you guys just got to knock it off with the German style stuff. Stop making lager, you know, alt. Don't make that. You should just do that for a seasonal, winter seasonal only. And, you know, you should look into, like, you guys should really need to start making, you know, some fruit IPAs, some double IPAs. And at that moment, like, I just saw, like, a crossroads. I went from this like three barrel system where I'm behind the bar talking to all the customers that are, you know, really funding our whole brewery at that point, selling beer that I loved, to going into this thing where now I'm just taking orders from this big company and working my butt off to do it. And this is like back when it was pretty much just me brewing everything, kegging everything, all the stuff. I was doing everything. And I was like, I don't think I want this anymore. I walked away from a really good job, paying me really good money, and now I'm doing this, which is my dream, but you know, I'm not dreaming about fruit IPA all day. Matter of fact, that's my nightmare. Right then, I kind of got the real the realization that I'm going to either just turn this thing and go 100% full speed to where I want and see if it, you know, crashes up on the rocks or we just succeed or nothing. And at least that way I'll know if it was meant to be or not. So that's why I was basically like, you, should, you know, the guy told me you should make fruit IPA. In my mind, I was like, you're getting nothing but now only German locker. <laughs> and we started doing that. And my partner, John, um, who's been involved in the brewery almost since like the, the beginning times, he's one of my, my friends from, I've known him since high school and he was always helping us out with the parties. And then he started getting on more and more in the, um, in the sales role. And now he, he runs our whole sales department and, and all the distribution. And, um, it was kind of like together we looked at it. We're like, no, no, let's, let's go full speed. Let's go full 
German. This is what we like to do. This is our biggest passion. I'm not going to make anything that I don't want to drink. All the beers in the menu are going to be things that I crave. And I'm never going to be the guy that goes to a beer fest when they ask me what I brought and I roll my eyes and go, oh, you know, I brought the whatever, whatever, whatever with fruit and this and that in there. But you know, it sells. You got to do it as it pays the bills. Not going to be that guy. And that's kind of where we've been. And it's actually, it's been great for us because it's a niche for one. A lot of breweries don't get into making lager because it takes a long, long time. But if you start the company off heading that direction, I look at a tank and that tank is tied up for eight weeks to me. That's just how that tank works. It's in my calculations. It's how I, I plan our our production. But if I'm going from turning you know a beer out every week and a half almost and then changing over to all lager, that's a very, very big situation. You've dropped your, you know, your capacity in and, you know, a lot. <laughs> so it's been kind of a cool thing that we've been able to grow with. And I'm, I'm just happy that, um, it's been working out so well. You just alluded to it with the eight weeks. I, I do feel it's important to emphasize, uh, you know, cause we've talked about this before on the happy hours. Uh, you are not a fast logger brewer. No. And it is funny because during doing these happy hours for the past year and a half with all these LA County breweries, what we've noticed is a lot of times what we'll get from people is this is our blonde, this is our Pilsner, this is IPA one, IPA two. And that's the majority of the packs, probably somewhere around 70%. And of course, for a lot of those breweries, they are doing faster, longer stuff. Why do I want to be doing a longer, longer? Why in your mind can I not get away with trying to do like a modified Narziss fermentation? Well, I, I think a lot of times if you're if you're choosing a corner to cut, there's a lot more corners you've probably cut as well. So we're talking like you know it's long lagering periods, but what else goes into making a great lager? There's a lot more steps. There's a lot more um, fermentation things to go wrong. Um, you've got a lot more delicate flavors to deal with. I'm talking about you know Hellas Pilsner. You can't hide anything behind a bunch of hops. You, know, you got to be making sure you're boiling all the way through. Um, everything works out really well because there's just less to there's like less to go wrong to actually make that beer come out. But I think with um, lagering, for instance, I, I think it just comes down to people don't want to spend time in the tank. And like, you know, I, I've I've seen it before. I've seen people you know say, well, how, how long did you log it for? Well, oh, you know, we, well, we 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 couldn't do it any more than like you know two weeks because you know we need the tank for something else. It's like, well. I need the tank for something else, but it's a logger that's going to take the same amount of time. So I just plan for that. I think that's why you see that. Also, I, I think um, another big thing you don't see a lot of is I think filtration is one of the most important things in logger brewing. Almost more important than all the crazy mash steps and even loggering for a long, long time. But that's not something you always see. And I think like when you're going for that crisp pills or that malty character – that yeast in there is going to give you that chalky grittiness that that I, I think ruins a lot of beers that without that could be really good. Yeah, and I think that's also been one of, one of my objections to some of the hazies that were out there. Like when people first started doing hazies and didn't have a clue really how to do it, you always got a, a you yeast. You have a clue how to do it? I'm just yeah. kidding. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I had to throw one in there. A lot of yeast, and, and yeast does have a very distinctive flavor. So, uh, yeah, it, it is good to see. I mean, because, again, I think – Moving on to the Christmas block here, this is a hell of a beer, and you can tell that this takes some time, and it feels just so remarkably clean. Thanks. For listeners out there, you don't get to have this right now unless you can go 
find some. And uh, Chris, this is available on shelves, right? Yeah, we shipped a bunch of it out. We're out of cans in the brewery. I've got it on draft right here. But yeah, the cans are all gone. I'm not sure if they're still at the store somewhere. I'm sure you could probably still find some out there. If you can, I highly recommend that you do. First, let's lay the groundwork here. What's different between a Christmas Bach to, say, a traditional Bach or a Doppelbach? Okay, so this is really a traditional Bach that we brew during the Christmas time, and therefore it is a Christmas Bach. That's, that's a short story of how, how it, <laughs> what the, rest of the name means. Well, I mean, hey, that's fine. But I mean, like, I also kind of – usually in my mind when I think of Bach, I'm thinking – Somewhere around that five and a half to six and a half range, and this is just slightly above that, but not. In, this is, I think, on the can it says six point eight, right? Six point eight, yeah. So it, it's roughly in there. And then a Doppelbach, of course, is a little bit higher. So we got our Christmas Bach here. To you, what are you looking for when you have a Bach, and does that change when you're now putting a winter notion to it? Bach, if you if you look back at you know the history of where Bach came from, it really just was a mispronunciation of the word Einbeck from this part of Germany and they thought it was Einbach, one Bach, and Bach happened to be, you know, a um, term for a goat. So that beer back at that time was a maltier, bigger version of the stuff they saw in the Munich area. So they kind of had the idea of, oh, Bach, that's just bigger, bigger beer, it's, that's what it is. And then you started seeing well, if Bach means big, just like in American craft brewing, imperial means, you know, big, then what happens when I make a Hellas that's a lot bigger than normal Hellas? We'll call it a Hellas Bach. And in America, we'll call it a imperial blonde ale, you know, if that was the, the same, like, correlation. So um, I think from there, things started, you know, you got uh, my Bach, Hellas Bach, and there's Doppel Bach. Traditional Bach was like the old school way of, of just what that first kind of Bach was. But I think you see a lot more of the Doppelbach, Hellas Bach, my Bach, and things like that. But looking at um, traditional Bach, it can range in color from like, you know, deep golden to almost brown. So you're looking at something that is right where my Bach is kind of leaving off and then stopping right before where Doppelbach would be picking up. Some breweries, um, you know, some German breweries, their Doppelbach is around 7%. Some of them that are a lot higher than that. Our Doppelbach is 8.5%, and our Dunkel is 5%. So we want to get something in the middle between those two right there. So that gave us that that Bach kind of category. It's bigger than Dunkel, smaller than Doppelbach, right in the middle between the two that we we brew here. Yeah, and what you get is, I, I think... If I were to sum it up, I would almost say it's it's very similar to taking a Vienna lager, one part Vienna lager, two parts Dunkel, and then increasing the everything about it just to get to that point where you're you know, you're adding more malt in to get that almost seven percent range. So it's got it's um it's not as thick and heavy as a Doppelbach, not as light and um, dry as a um, as a Vienna lager. But it does have kind of the best of both of those. You have this nice bready malt character to it, but it's also something that you know you could probably put this in a liter mug and drink it and not be full. You'll probably be drunk, but you're not going to be like you know filled up like you know drinking a Doppelbach in a liter. You feel like you just ate like a, a whole pile of food. <laughs> <laughs> and I, w- I will say, so I have it here in my glass. And again, the note that I had when I when I first tried it, and it's still true in this sample I'm having here now, is 
this feels like a big, warm, malty hug. It reminds me a lot of New England brown bread. Okay. Where, again, it's all that kind of little bit of that molassesy, you know, dark raisins and richness. But what I think is the most impressive trick about it is that even though it has such a malt-forward, round, big mouthfeel, it does not feel heavy in the back end. It doesn't feel cloying. The second you swallow it, the beer sort of disappears from your tongue. And it's a little bit of a nice little magic trick, right? Because it, it feels so much like a velvet robe when you have it in your mouth. It's a delicious explanation. Yeah. And then it just goes <laughs> away, and making you ready for the next sip. So I can totally see where you're, you'd be saying, hey, this this could go in a liter. Now, let's break down how you, you make this thing happen then. Because um, you said Vienna, Dunkel, combine them together, give them a little more gas. Mm-hmm. What are we looking at in terms of malt? So we got some Barca Munich, which makes up most of the grain bill. Vienna. A little tiny bit of Cara Munich 3. And then a little bit of Carafa Special 3 we throw into the spar just to kind of deepen the color a little bit. The the Barca, for people who don't remember, that's the Wireman Heritage grain. Yes. To me, it always carries a little more oomph to it, a little, a little more bass note. And so you've got the Munich and Vienna versions of that. Why? How much Cara Munich is in this, and like why that Cara Munich? You know, um, not a whole lot. Very, very small amount. Um, about like two percent, maybe. Put that in there just just for a little tiny bit of like a little rounded caramel edge to it. I could probably get. I I feel like if I did it again and didn't even use that, you probably wouldn't even notice it. Just kind of a little bit of a tad, just a l- little pinch mainly. <laughs> and then the craft of three, we we do. Um, I don't know, I'm like not even 1% of that. And that just goes right in the, in the sparge. Yeah, the, the craft of three is just a little pinch between the cheek and the gums. Yeah. Water chemistry. Cause I know, I know you guys are playing around with your water. Yes. Yeah, so we have relatively soft water. We do a, uh, we have RO, blend a little bit of the city water back into it to get, you know, some base minerals. And then, um, for this one, we just put some gypsum in it. Not a whole lot of stuff. Um, trying to go for that softer malt feel but again it maybe just maybe that gypsum that little bit of sulfate is actually part of what's helping the finish mm-hmm. yeah because yeah. again all that munich all that vienna that is an incredibly rich palate a little sulfate water is actually a good thing there yeah now about the munich the barca munich which is interesting is that barca munich is right between munich type one and munich type two it's not as heavy as a munich type two mm-hmm. and um last year we, we did a couple of tests where we did we did dunkel where our batch is pretty much 80 percent munich and we did one with all munich then one with all barca munich then one with a split of barca and um regular munich tested all the attenuations looked at all the flavors like and we're, we're done because we had three different tanks to put them all in and um what we found out is that munich type two you get a lot more of that that dark fruit character and the Barca Munich, you get a little bit more of the toasted bread and less of that dark fruit. So when we were doing our, our Dunkel, we always had an issue with trying to get that thing to attenuate down all the way. When we went over to the Barca Munich, it started coming down perfectly to that level we wanted to see it at for attenuation percentage. And then that beer just kind of just just really clicked over. Was, when you look at a Dunkel, you got to have something that is very drinkable, um, not too dry, not too sweet. If it's too sweet, it's just not going to work. And if you can get that gravity perfect with that breadiness, then that beer is just absolutely fabulous. So I started doing Barca Munich and a lot of these bigger things. 
and then the same with the Bark of Vienna. Uh, Bark of Vienna is um, it's the same L as uh, the regular the same Love Bond as the same uh, the uh, regular Vienna, but it's just that different heritage barley that's just using that. The kernel is a little bit more plump. If you look at a Barca Pills versus regular Pills, that kernel is a little fatter looking, and it's, it it helps with laudering, I think. And um, so we use mostly Barca for that. Well, and I, and I love that toasty character that's in here. And it is funny because I still get a little dark fruit, but I don't get I don't get a heavy heavy amount of it. So we got ROR, little sulfate. We got the Barca Munich, Barca Vienna, Cara uh, Munich, and a touch of Carafa Three. I know you you do decoctions. Yes. Uh-huh. So walk me through the decoctions. And why do I want to do a decoction? I hate decoctions. I'm lazy. If you're lazy, you shouldn't be brewing. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. We do decoctions just because, you know, starting off, we we, did, we never did that. We always did step mashing, though. So all of our beer, every single beer we do is step mashing. Step mash. Started doing decoction when we're just starting to look at all the little odds and ends to improve. When you start brewing... You go for the biggest things like, you know, grain bill, hopping. And then once you start getting that perfect, you got to be greedy. You got to say, what else can I make this, can make this beer better? And you start looking at your water chemistry, pH, and everything else you're getting into. And then at some point, you got to say, all right, what more can I do? And that's when we started looking at like our Hellas and we said, like, you know what, let's, let's try to do some decoction. Let's try to see if we can get that malt body a little bit up without making it sweet. See what that, what that does. And um, we started doing that, trying it out, and I saw a difference. Um, now, is it a difference that every single person out in the public would see? I don't know. I see it, and I want it that way, so I'm going to have it that way. Well, you're the one who has to live with it, so. Oh yeah, yeah, totally. But like, but brewing lager, it's it's um it's all about just little tiny small gains. It's the sum of a thousand little tiny miracles that come together to make that really really basic beer really good. I saw a difference with it. I saw that it, it definitely deepened that malt character. And it's funny because I, I started doing that, started doing decoction. And it was one of those things where I, I would I would do one batch without it. I'd do one with it. And I'd go back, try to find out the difference and try to see how they're you know progressing. And I, I brewed one and my brother came in and he was just, just drinking in some liters of Hellas. And he came up to me and I didn't tell him we we're doing this at all. And he was like, Dude, I can't stop drinking this. Like, what'd you guys do to it? It's it's just so full and awesome. Like, oh, uh, nothing. Like, no, really? Like, oh wait, no, no, we decocted that one. It's like, oh, okay. Like, all right, well, this is someone who doesn't know what we're doing is um is noticing this. So I started doing that with all the most of our beers, actually all of them, I think. Um, all the the German style ones. And I, I think it just helps out with that that nice maltiness without making it super sweet. Whereas, yeah, you can get that, you can get a similar effect by putting a lot of complex caramel malts and maybe some melanoid malt in there. But if you can do it without doing that, the beer will just be a lot, a lot more drinkable. So it adds a lot more work to it. But when you taste that wort right out of the decoction, it's, it's got a distinct heightened maltiness to it. Well, and then of course, you know, does that survive all the way to the finished product? You're saying with your Hellas, for instance, it does. So now when you're doing the decoction on this, is this like a, a single or a double? We do a single. So we, so we step mash or we come in at around 130 and then we'll bump it up to 145 for our main rest. And then we'll go to 156, pull, uh, pump over two thirds of that whole mash to our lauder ton. And we leave back one third in the, in the, um, the mash mixer. Heat that to a boil, boil it for about 20 minutes, 
then pump that whole thing over to the louder time, which brings that temp from 156 up to 168 for our mash out temp. Mm-hmm. That's like our standard, um, I would say standard ma- uh, malt pro- or mash step profile, but that's just what we do for pretty much all the um, all of our beers. That's actually a good point for people who are thinking about it because I mean, there aren't a lot of breweries that I can think of here in Southern California that are equipped to actually be able to do a decoction. Right. I mean, homebrewers can fake it because what's an extra pot? Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the commercial level, uh, that's a little bit bigger. Yeah, definitely. So we got that step uh, step mash. We've got the single decoction. I'm guessing not a lot of hops in this, right? Just enough. No, not not at all. We, we just have Halitower and Hercules going in at 60 minute. We boil for 90, eh, probably like 100 minutes in this one, actually. But we go in at 60 minutes just to get really just that little slight bitterness to balance it up a little bit. But you don't really taste any hops in this at all. No, what I get is I get that bitterness on the back of my tongue. Like a- after yeah. I've swallowed, then there's that, that bitterness. If you had to guess, like gravity-wise, how big are you and like how how many IBUs are you aiming for? Let's see. This IBU is around 25, so not not too high. Yeah, real tiny. And yeah. I'm guessing at what, 6, 8, you're probably at like, what, 16 degrees Plato? 17? I'm still in the specific gravity. I still use okay. that for everything. So specific, yeah. specific gravity, what, like 1070-ish? 1068. 1068. Hey, look at yeah. that. Yep. We got that going. So again, the barest nudge of hops. And then yeast. Yeast, we use uh, White Lab's Bach. The German Bach. Mm-hmm. That's the Iyengar strain, I believe. Yes, it is. Which is a wonderful strain. Oh, yeah. It's one of my favorite breweries. And then for fermentation, you had alluded to this earlier when we talked about it, but traditional style fermentation, you know, how, how long are you laying this thing primary and then how, how long are you laying it longer? Let's see. So it'll primary out for, you know, maybe a week and a half, maybe a little bit more, just a clear diacetyl. We go, we go one temp the whole way through. So this one we fermented at 52 degrees, but we don't do any diacetyl rests or anything. We just go straight right through it. And then once we hit terminal gravity, um, I usually, we know it's about like a day or two of, of terminal gravity to, to really clear up every single last bit of diacetyl in there. Then we'll take it on there, our spectrophotometer. We'll check our, our VDK level. And, um, when it passes that, then we're good to start stepping it down slowly, you know, two degrees a day till we get to our 33 degree lagering temperature. And then it's hanging out in the tank for, you know, probably at least like six weeks right there. That's another, uh, another difference. You know, like there's some people who, when they want to go to 33 degrees or wherever it is they're lagering at, they'll go for a straight crash versus what you're doing, which is a little more old school, which is kind of do that, that step down. Mm-hmm. What do you get different by doing the step down? Cause I assume you've also done the crash. Yeah. So, um, when you're lagering, there's still something going on. The yeast is in there. It's still cleaning up some flavors. It's pulling in some, some junk that, you know, you wouldn't really want finishing up in the beer. So, if you pull the beer off the off the yeast, it's not really lagering anymore. Now it's just sitting there cold. So if you crash cool it, the yeast just freezes up and falls right to the bottom of the tank, and then it's out of there. So when we're doing like you know Valkyrie or our alt, well, we crash cool that one. Yeast drops right out. We pull it out of it. Doesn't need to really lager there for a long time or anything. But for lager, I want to cool it very slowly so I can get that yeast to come out of solution, but still it, there's going to be some s- sitting behind hanging out in there. That haze that you look at for unfiltered lager that there's, there's yeast floating around in there doing stuff. So you don't want to shock cool it like that. Also, they're a little bit more temperamental than some of the ale strains. So you got to be nice to them. 
Well, that, that's the reason why you go for uh, 3470, right? So that everything can happen. That yeast is um, a weirdo. Yeah. Well, this Bach one does really well. It's Yeah, we get great performance with that. And so we go, I think you'd said, what, eight weeks total, you know, to get uh, to get all the way through this process. Yeah. I mean, again, uh, I'm sitting here, I'm drinking it. I've gone through most of the pint without even really realizing it, which is impressive for a 6.8 beer that is also big and rich and malty. If you were going to make changes to this, is there something that you would change? I mean, we had talked a little bit, maybe maybe not doing that care Munich. Yeah, you know, um, maybe that, but I think it's a, such a low volume that I don't necessarily see it it does much um i don't get the cloying like stickiness that you would think would come from that i've i've definitely done um beers like this in the past where i've used a lot more malt like that and that was my biggest you know take back from that you know cut that back a lot more it needs to be a nice little like spice note in there not like a main flavor yeah, I don't know. It came out really good. Like I, I was, you know, we, we filtered that thing, put it in a glass, and and the whole brew crew was like, "Oh my god, this is great!" So yeah, we're really happy with it. All right, well, I will say that sometimes you pour a beer into your glass and you taste it, and yeah, you have that reaction. It's not often, you know, but sometimes you'll have that new beer and it will just it sings, and this yeah. this beer sings. Before I let you go. Any tips for people who are trying to do this at home? Because you 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 started off as a home brewer. Think back to those days. If I, as a home brewer, were trying to do this, what would you recommend to me that I focus on? If you're home brewing this style, looking at the malt, um, if you want to do a decoction, that's something that's totally possible. Um, you can use a stovetop for that. And we've done that in our little home brew system where we just ladle it out like the old school you know, brewers used to do. Um, that's possibility. If you are going for just a single infusion and you don't want to deal with any of that stuff, then I would put in a little bit of that melanoidin malt. That'll, um, it'll bump that Munich character up a little bit more. If you're getting really high attenuation on something like this, then you're going to want to thicken up a little bit. Too much attenuation, it'll, it'll have that gasoline flavor to it. You don't, don't want to have a little bit of that warming alcohol, but really not too much of it. So you can change that by raising the mash temp a little bit more. Um, if you're not doing step mashes, then you can probably come in at 150, 152 and run the whole thing through at a single like that. Also playing with the, the Munich, Barca Munich. I, I love Barca Munich, but the way we're brewing with this system might be a little bit different. So, um, that's something to really kind of look at. If you, if you try it out and you say, you know, this is, this is not malty enough, then maybe toss some bark, uh, some regular Munich in there. If it's, you know, too malty and too, too sweet, then I would say, you know, Barker is kind of the way to go. Fermentation, uh, it's, it's hard to, you're not going to really, well, you, you can do a single, fermentation temp all the way through and just do the the microwave heated smell test which works out pretty well too you know if not then then throw a diacetyl rest in there when you get down to almost all the way through let that thing rise up to around 55 to 60 degrees you'll probably be be pretty good and uh if you can you probably won't be able to filter it but definitely biofine it get that thing clear if you can see through it and it's nice and clear, it'll taste very good. If it's still really, really hazy, it might still taste great, but it's going to be something that you could change to make it taste a hell of a lot better. And really, that's where I'd start. There you go. Those are all good uh, tips and techniques. Now, again, folks, if you're in the LA area, I highly recommend that you go visit Integrin up there in Moore Park. It's a nice short drive. 
And, you know, you'll be able to enjoy some really fantabulous uh, German-style beers. Uh, Chris, anything else you want the audience to know? Uh, come visit us, definitely. We're here all the time. We'd love to show you around. And go, go visit a, a the, the former three-barrel brewery that had too much automation turned into a bigger brewery that probably has too much automation. <laughs> has a lot more. Matter of fact, right now I'm, I'm hooking up a automated steam valve, so <laughs> always always adding. Uh, and, and, of course, uh, Chris is, like most geeks, very happy to talk about all the geeky stuff. A little too happy, yeah. <laughs> all right, well, hey, thank you, sir. Thank you for the time. And also, as always, thank you for the beer. And thank you for having us. Always a pleasure. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hoped that you enjoyed this remembrance of Christmas box past. Now, did Chris convince you that you should do a decoction? Did he convince me? I'm not entirely certain, but I will tell you that that beer is fantastic, as is all the Integrum beer I've had in the past. So give it a shot. Let me know what you think. Have you played around with those Barca malts? Let me know. You can always reach me at podcastexperimentalbrew.com. Speaking of which, remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at denny at experimentalbrew.com or drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at EXP Brewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homebrew forum out there. And, of course, you can always find us at www.experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Click the AHA, Amazon, or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is, well, it's TBD. We've got a couple of ideas. We'll let you know shortly, and we're about to give a donation to Project Freedom Ride. Until next time, remember, the brew is out there, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files. Seltzer Sensation is here, and our friends at Mangrove Jacks have specifically formulated their newest craft series yeast for making home-brewed hard seltzer. The Mangrove Jacks hard seltzer yeast and nutrient produces a clean, neutral flavor and aroma profile, allowing you to get creative with your hard seltzer recipe. Homebrewers can use this blend of yeast and nutrient in their own seltzer recipes, or choose from one of the new Mangrove Jacks hard seltzer recipe kits, which are formulated to make up to five gallons of refreshing 4.5% seltzer. The kits come in three thirst-quenching varieties, Raspberry Breeze, Lemon and Lime Smash, and Pineapple Sunset.